Okay. And with that, I'd like to welcome everyone to our Merge Medical Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Brown, with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole. We've got a fantastic lineup for you today. We're talking to the creators of Intact Medical. This is a wearable uh, AI device for uh, predicting post-op ileus. With that, I would like to introduce you to Buddy Lyons and Dr. John Cromwell. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jeff. We appreciate yeah. being here. Absolutely. I'd first like to give you an opportunity to talk about the problem that Intact's addressing. Yeah, so the problem that we're actually addressing, we, the, the company is actually sort of, uh, sort of developed into something that we didn't intend to. So basically, we're a digital health company um, that uses, applies, you know, predictive analytics and AI to acoustics in the body to predict certain um, adverse events of patients. Um, we started out initially uh, doing the original one with, for Privacy A, which is our recently launched device that does an assessment of uh, uh, gastrointestinal impairment risk in uh, right now intestinal surgical patients. We are, we've just filed an application to expand that into abdominal surgery as well. And what the device does is um, it predicts, uh, or, or we, we can't really use the word predict because it's not in the label. It does an assessment of the risk at post-hour 12 for a patient who's going to develop gastrointestinal impairment two to seven days after surgery. So we're going to tell the surgeon at post-op hour 12 if their patient's going to develop gastrointestinal impairment. That gastrointestinal impairment could be the result of a post-operative ileus, or it could be the result of a small bowel obstruction. Um, most of those, the overwhelming majority, about 94% of those are post-operative ileus patients. Um, the others are, 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 are small bowel, mostly small bowel obstructions patients. The significance of that is, is that right now, there are a couple of different ways that surgery is done, you know, in the U.S. and the EU developed countries, um, is enhanced recovery after surgery protocol, which most board certified colorectal surgeons do practice ERAS, where they do, <clears throat> in post-operative care, they do early oral refeeding and early discharge. Uh, the problem with that brings is that with post-operative ileus, the patient's going to be sick two to seven days from now with, you know, nausea and vomiting and, and distended abdomen pain. It's driving a readmission rate of, of 20% or over in that patient population. Or there are surgeons who are other who, who do surgery who do not use ERAS. They do more d conventional delayed oral refeeding where they'll they'll not feed a patient until the, there is some sign of bowel you know, a GI function return to normal, um, which they use, you know, like passing of gas or bowel movement in order to determine that. The problem with that is it's not, it's not really perfect. I mean, a patient could have a bowel movement on post-op day three and still develop an ileus on post-op day six. Um, but they do delay the, the oral refeeding. Then they feed the patient and then they hold the patient for several days to make sure they're tolerant of the diet. Um, that means that the length of stay in 70 to 80 percent of their patients is you know three to five days longer than it needs to be so neither one of these are really addressing the issue very well it's it, it's suboptimal care and very costly care uh with regard to dealing with this with patient population how big is the need and how how is that measured well if you look at abdominal surgery um in, in the U.S., for instance, you know, there are about two and a half million uh, abdominal surgeries done in the U.S. that we that we believe are medium to high risk for developing a postoperative ileus. 
and in Europe, there's in the EU in total, uh, there's about three million of those. So it's not a trivial number of patients that go through this, and we're spending a ton of money on readmissions and holding patients and the patients longer. And what is relatively, you know, a relatively small patient population in the U.S. about two and a half million people. Um, and so we're, you know, with privacy A, we can reduce both of those. We can tell the, the physician if the patient is at risk for gastrointestinal impairment, whether they do ERAS or they do conventional surgery, that will tell them what to do in their uh, post-operative feeding protocol, whether the patients can successfully be refed on the, within 24 hours of surgery. We could. So our initial indication, uh, label, label indication is in, is in uh, intestinal surgery. Um, and Buddy mentioned the larger problem um, in in intestinal surgery. We know that the the risk of ileus or the prevalence of ileus is somewhere between fifteen and thirty percent. In our clinical trials, it's around twenty one percent in the centers where where we're doing it, and that's where those uh, those numbers come from. That you know seventy percent of patients don't need to be spending uh, additional time in the hospital because they're not going to develop an ileus. Wow. I see. So you guys sort of touched on this already. You can expand on the, the question. The current standard of care is either you're doing the ERAS protocol, which I looked at one study, said it doesn't even work, or you can just delay feeding. Yeah, let me speak to the standard for a moment. Um, you know, I'm a colorectal surgeon. For most colorectal surgeons, you know, probably ERAS has become most of the standard. Um, ERAS is not just about earlier oral feeding. It's a lot of other components, things like not routinely leaving a nasogastric tube in, um, you know, and, and uh, using a narcotic sparing, a pain regimen, using multimodal analgesia. Um, there's all sorts of facets to ERAS. Uh, the big component that we're trying to address here, though, is, is, is the big problem is that um, uh, when you feed a patient after surgery, they can appear to tolerate it on the surface. They may not show any signs of, of um, outward signs of ileus until they've been discharged home. They appear to be tolerating and discharged home. But this has a significant benefit for those surgeons who are not doing early oral repeating and early discharge in that um, we can tell them with a 95% confidence that that patient's not going to develop an ileus or, or they will successfully be able to refeed. Um, so they're not waiting you know, that time in the hospital. Uh, it's quite simple. Um, the device um, is, a, is, a, is about a three-inch um, three uh, device or so that's got an adhesive backing on it. So um, the way the label states that we use this is we put it on within an hour of surgery. So if the uh, patient's done with surgery, it can be put on in the operating room or probably more commonly just uh, placed on the recover in, the, during, uh, in the recovery room within that first hour and the staff presses a button to activate it. That's all that, that needs to be done initially. Um, the device then monitors non-invasively on the abdominal wall monitors for that first 12 hours. Um, it's, it's measuring uh, an acoustic biomarker in the GI tract. And at that 12 hour time point, it's able to produce um, a risk assessment, either high or low risk, it's binary, so that no one has to go in and try to interpret any kind of you know, numbers or anything like that. And this can easily be protocolized into a you know, post-op protocol so that you know, if, they're, if they're low risk, they would advance you know, to, a, to a diet as chosen by the, by the uh, surgeon or the surgical team. If they were high risk, um, you may delay early oral refeeding um, until, uh, until another time. And so 
And then the, after 12 hours, the device can simply be removed and, and uh, we have a program to recycle it that we make it into later. That's awesome. So I looked at the pitch deck and it looks like in a nutshell, the business model is that you can save hospitals just a staggering amount of money and by decreasing admissions and of course, improve patient care. If, uh, buddy, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, really, the you know we have a very extensive uh, budget impact model that we had developed by a third-party health economics firm that goes through all the variables that dealing with um, how it impacts uh, the budget of a hospital, and you know there are lots of things in there. It's it's the number of bed days saved, the opportunity revenue for putting extra patients in those beds, the the reduction in post post-operative monitoring costs, and all these other things. Right. But what it really boils down to is there's two benefits really that involved in that. One of them is the reduction in, in, in readmission rates. And that's a clinical benefit. Not so, you know, readmissions are a complicated question when it comes to reimbursement. Um, they, you know, the, the hospital will get an, another payment for that readmission. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, they do get penalized for high readmission rates. Right. Right. So to capture that, those dollar amounts is rather difficult. So we take the more conservative stance in our in our model and say, OK, we can reduce your readmissions by and, and a, a good number for that is by, say, an average of 43 percent or more. Um, but you're going to get an extra payment. So, you know, so that's that's not that's not in our value prop, really. Uh, the reduction in readmissions are and we know that there are a lot of high profile uh high-profile academic centers who some of them are in our current clinical trial who have higher readmission rates who will pay just to reduce that readmission rate because it is, it's not a good look mm. um, if you're a premier when you've got a high readmission rate. But the real savings really comes from a couple of areas. Uh, it's really about bed day saved. So we're going to save you so much per day, per, per, per day on that. Right. And, and when we look at places like Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic who are in our trials, um, you know, we typically end up saving them somewhere between five and six million dollars uh, with that. And, and that's the ROI on that versus the cost of the device is usually something like eight to 12 to one. Yeah. Buddy, what can you say about market size and, and your forecast? Yeah. So, you know, the, mar the, the, device, the, the list price of the device is, is $795. Um, you know, the average selling price is really about $600. So if you look at that and you look at the U.S. market, you know, the potential in abdominal surgery you know, for the total addressable market is, 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 is quite large. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's about, it's a couple of billion dollars and it's a little bit more than that, even in Europe, because the population is a little bigger. Uh, and we do have IP issues in both the U S and Europe. Um, Asia is, we are actually looking for partners in Asia. We have people who are interested in using this in Asia, although we can't get really great data out of Asia. I mean, I would say that if you had to pick a number, maybe you say it's $6 billion globally um, with regard to just, you know, just using it in gastrointestinal pain, and that's just using abdominal surgery. So there are other pockets out there where there's even addition more surgery. I mean, um, cystectomies in men—that's a—they have a gastrointestinal impairment rate well over thirty percent. It's even higher than it is abdominal surgery. Wow. Um, gynecology, um, even in even in uh, cardiovascular surgery, it's a small percentage of patients of like five percent. But there's data out there showing that if you develop if patients who develop a post-operative ileus who've had cardio, uh, cardiovascular surgery increased their risk of mortality something like 13 times. Is so, that right? I mean, yeah, so we're right. not really focused on all these sort of peripheral areas yet because we just launched Prevacy A and we're, you know, 
the, the low-hanging fruit is in intestinal surgery and then abdominal surgery. But we think that it'll increase. And not, not only that, we don't talk about this much. I think what will help us get into other types of surgery and it will make it more feasible is that we already have the second-generation device called Previs AI Gut, which mm -hmm. is from a platform that John developed we call Previs AI. Um, it's an IoT wearables platform, acoustic IoT wearables platform that's even more accurate than Previs EA is. And the more accurate the device is, that the help you know the, the more the, the lower the ileus or GII rate you have to have to make it feasible to use that device. And so we'll probably start concentrating on some of these more peripheral markets once that's out. We, we we're planning hopefully to file five ten k on that device um, in um, in twenty twenty four. So it's right behind Privacy A. What we're really doing with Privacy A is preparing the market for something uh, that can deal with this problem and and then coming right behind that with a, a sort of this new and improved version that's more accurate out of the box number one and number two it's machine learning so it the the, the performance of the device improves over time so you have this ever increasing value prop uh over time and the cost of the device to us to manufacture is a fraction of what the cost of manufacturing a privacy a devices because in privacy a we do all of the all the computation happens on the device. It's got a you know, printed circuit board and all this stuff. It's got all this ah. stuff on it. Everything with the I, with, with the Previs AI gut device is, is an IoT wearable. It's not in the cloud. So I, I want to just make a point. You know, I'm, I'm an anesthesiologist. We're talking about this in the context of colorectal surgery. But you're making the point that this is really for anybody that's had a big surgery because they're all at risk for, but it's totally scalable. I mean, the, the right. hospital systems can order as many or as few as they want. They're not, right. not making a large capital commitment that says we're going to buy X number of these. We just decide right. what procedures they are going to go into. Right. 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 That's exactly right. With that, what is your marketing strategy for, for us and Europe? Yeah. In the U S um, it's, you know, we're really trying to reach a small number of people. Um, we relatively speaking, um, the U.S. Uh, market, you know, there are only 1,400 board-certified colorectal surgeons in the United States. About 900 of those are attached to 425 academic centers, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking for an exit. I'm not looking to build an empire. Mm -hmm. And um, what I, you know, one of the things as we talk for strategics is that we have to demonstrate, obviously, is traction in the marketplace. It's not only how much, who's, you know, it's not only the, the, the dollar value, but who's using it. So... We're concentrating on really mostly, not not solely, but but a lot of that is, is academic medical centers, medical centers to try to get to these a subset of these 900 board colorectal, uh, board certified colorectal surgeons. Those are the people who are interested in research. Those are the people who are interested in doing an investigative sponsored trial. Those are the people who ultimately set the standard of care, which filters out of the community where there's a you know in, in, with the general surgeons out in the community who do who do colorectal surgery. So those are the ones that we're, we're predominantly interested in. And right now we have a trial going on that we call Privacy A post-market trial. It's at eight centers around the country, and most of them are academic centers. And is the is the label going to be the same for both your stage one and stage two device, the uh, Previs Gut, you're calling it? Yes, yes. The uh, the label, because the we'll file a 510K on Privacy AI Gut, and it mm -hmm. will have it will have the same, it'll, it'll be used at the, the privacy A will be the predicate device for that, that device. Mm -hmm. And so it will get the same label 
as as privacy a guy and th- does that label allow you to say it's prognostic or does it allow you to just say hey we can reduce readmission rates and so uh, the, the label actually says and i'm i'm paraphrasing a little bit but just to give you a flavor for it it actually says that it uses an acoustic biomarker called mh4 that assesses the risk of a patient developing gastrointestinal impairment during mm-hmm. intestinal surgery mm-hmm. and that is plenty and that's essentially what it does mm-hmm. uh, uh but you know what in actuality what it does it predicts that that event is going to happen two to seven days after surgery mm-hmm. well you said the original device predicts with what is it 95 percent accuracy dr cromwell yeah, well, we look the two um, two important values we look at. One is the negative predictive value. Mm-hmm. That's so important because we want to be sure if the device says that there's a low risk of of uh, gastrointestinal impairment, the natural consequence of that is that the patient goes home. And right. so, to avoid readmissions, we we we've tuned the thresholds to have a very high negative predictive value. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so and then we look at sensitivity, obviously, because uh, that allows us to capture, you know, those, those true positives. And we're, we're working probably at 85, uh, 85, 86% um, sensitivity, if I remember the numbers right. Yeah, as we bring in, in the AI version that's upcoming, all of the data, all of the audio data flows to the uh, cloud platform. So we can aggregate all the data on the cloud. And there we can, we can train and we can uh, come up with even you know, better strategies for, for dealing with the, uh, dealing with the audio, uh, using all of that data from, from, uh, nationally. I'm always interested in the Genesis. Can you, can you take us back, uh, to, you know, this marker, I forget what you called it, you know, who, who, who discovered yeah. that yeah. and the patent behind that, um, you know, what was the aha moment behind all of this? Yeah. John. Um, yeah, so so uh, I, I was at the University of Tennessee previously at the Health Science Center there, and um, you know we sit in morbidity and mortality conference every week, uh, listening to to issues with patients. And um, one particular week, we had a number of patients who developed postoperative ileus, um, and several had aspirations and and you know aspiration pneumonia and really sick, requiring ICU care, etc. And, um, you know, it struck me that there, need, there had to be a better way of, of um, segmenting patients who would or wouldn't really tolerate, uh, you know, early oral refeeding. Mm-hmm. What I felt was that, you know, patients don't just go from having normal gut function to ileus in the course of, a, you know, a minute or something like that. There's this transition zone. Mm-hmm. My feeling was that there had to be some features uh, within the... Um, the waveforms of the GI tract that would give us an indication of when a patient entered that transition zone. And uh, well, and, it, and so what we ended up doing was collecting a huge library of audio from, from patients who did and didn't have postoperative ileus um, and developed a, um, a strategy, kind of like a DNA sort of discovery strategy where we, you know, instead of using restriction endonucleases to cleave the, the DNA and and match it to, to certain um, clinical features. We used uh, sets of digital filters and, and things like this to cleave up the audio spectrum and look at individual pieces of the audio spectrum and correlate those with clinical outcomes from, from that library of audio data. And we came up with a bunch of candidates. There were probably six major candidates that were acoustic biomarkers. 
Um, we screened those again. It came down to this one called MH4, which is the one that ultimately made it into the, um, into the device. Uh, we did a small 30 patient validation trial of that acoustic biomarker at the University of Tennessee, which showed unequivocally that it predicted postoperative ileus. And then we've just been on that same track um, since then, getting that algorithm embedded into the device called Prevacia that we have today. And since then, so we've gotten a couple of patents issued based on that IP. And then we've gotten another one, another one's in play there on the commercial version of the device. And then, of course, we've gone on to get uh, to, to file IP for Privacy AI as well. So, so you know, I want to dial it back just a little bit. We we talked a lot about the company, but we haven't talked about either one of you. Uh, you each have impressive resumes. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about yourselves, your backgrounds, John? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I uh, I'm a uh, board, well, double board in general in colorectal surgery. I've been an academic surgeon virtually my entire career. I trained at the University of Minnesota for the most part and then uh, held academic positions at uh, Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. And then I was recruited to the University of Tennessee to start a new colorectal surgery program there. And then ultimately ended up here in Iowa, where I currently am at the University of Iowa. Um, I have a background in um, well, I wear a number of different hats. I, I serve as an associate chief medical officer for the University of Iowa. I run an informatics um, uh, digital health lab at the University of Iowa, which is where a lot of uh, a lot of the IP that we work with comes from. Um, I have a background in physical chemistry, which which is the, the sort of the reason I got interested in modeling um, any any of this kind of data in the first place. Is just the experience from trying to model. Um, large, um, large uh, biochemical molecules uh, somehow translated into the work that we do. That's great. How about you, buddy? So well, I'm actually, uh, by training, I'm an equity analyst, and I was uh, an analyst on the street. I was a biotechnology analyst on the street, and then, uh, and prior to that, I was a, a buy side analyst. I read about uh, five billion dollars in healthcare money for what was then Wachovia Asset Management, mm -hmm. and that's how I got sort of got in the in the healthcare thing. And then, uh, you know, 2005, I, I left the investment business and started helping some companies do some things to get some product to market. You, you, you think you learn a lot when you're looking at companies and you think you learn a lot about clinical trials and, and, and intellectual property and, and, and marketing, until you, go and do it. Yeah. you really know nothing until you go. Right. Do it. right. And, but anyway, so I, I got involved in a biopharma startup and then this opportunity came along with, with, with uh, with this technology, and I um, I formed the company and immediately gave a piece of it to John because I knew I could not do this without him. And um, since then, uh, John's developed other technologies. We have evolved as a company. We thought we were going to do this one thing, and then we were going to sell this company to somebody and make a lot of money and go lay on a beach somewhere. Well, I was mm -hmm. John. I don't think John will ever give up working, but I was. But along the way, John's developed other technology, and that's when Prevost AI came along. And Prevost AI is, is interesting in the sense that not only does it give us the second product to, you know, the Prevost A, and it's more accurate and, you know, machine learning with continuously learning, it also gives us the opportunity to move into other areas. And so John has been collecting data on uh, people in, for heart and lung applications. And um, we recently got some initial data on that with regard to being able to distinguish heart and lung um, function using sound. And I think that what, we're, what we want to demonstrate, you know, we believe 
that in the next couple of years that there'll probably be an exit for the company. Um, so while we have this company and as long as we can do it in a cost effective way that is not, you know, dilutive to shareholders tremendously is to develop Previs AI into a platform. And we right now, this collection of data that John's doing now um, is going to be the first step in demonstrating that we can do something in some sort of uh, like predicting a bronchospasm in an asthma patient in an IoT wear with an IoT wearable or predicting uh, decompensation in CHF. Um, the reason that we think that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in CHF and remote monitoring. The problem with that, a lot of that stuff is it's, it's implantable type things, you know, sensors and vessels and things like that. This will be completely um, non-invasive. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that 70% of patients who have a CHF go into a hospital and never see a cardiologist. And after that, only about 19% of them are referred up the chain. And so these people are taken care of by hospitalists, internists, you know, their family practice doctors, their local internists and things like that. And we believe that we can be cutting a technology of those people to be able to predict those events to prevent hospitalizations. And it's a very similar story in, um, in asthma uh, with these just 25 million asthma patients in the US. And we believe that it's a, it's a very similar story where we can predict that event from happening. Um, we can do, the patient can do whatever their physician tells them to do. That may be, you know, take your albuterol or your steroids or whatever, or call my office or what to prevent that. So we've got a first step going on in there. We've got some, I think we've got some interesting data coming out probably by the end of this first half this year or in the third quarter. That is a, is a real first step toward being able to do that. And uh, we just saw some of the first data the other day and it's very, it's very interesting data. So we really evolved over the years. And by the time we get this company you know, ready for an exit, I want to be able to offer someone a platform where you can develop product. And we, I don't think we'll ever bring a heart and lung product. I mean, if we end up having the company long enough, we will, but I just don't think we'll have the company. Long. But what we, where we want to get it to is we want to get it to prototype and solid data and then let somebody else in an exit. But we want to be able to add value to that exit price uh, with the technology that we have. And that's what we're working toward doing. The um, yeah the 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 AI platform that we've developed um, in the same vein as what he was talking about gives us a very consistent uh, ability to um, rapidly prototype um, devices that depend on audio for you know for multiple applications and it allows us to have a consistent way of um, analyzing that data whether it's a heart data lung data whatever. Um, once it reaches the cloud, we can pipe it through any algorithm that we need to and have a very consistent way of, of, of doing it. And if it involves, you know, a patient having a handheld device to monitor their lung function or, or their, their heart function, that's, that's really simple to add to a, to a cloud-based platform. And so it really is a consistent and rapid development platform that, that adds value. I was going to ask, I want to make sure I understand and our viewers understand you've developed or there are there you know of acoustic biomarkers that are predictive of CHF, asthma, COPD. Much like um, with with Ilias, we believe that there um, there are these th there's transition zones for patients that 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 have compensated disease, whether it's in uh, in in heart disease, congestive heart failure, if it's in um, asthma or COPD. 
And we're really interested in identifying the audio features that, that allow us to understand that they're, they're in the process of decompensating, but doing it as early as possible. And so we're in the stages. We believe we have the data that suggests we can develop these things within just, just in the same manner as we've done with um, Prevacy AI Gut. Uh, the same way for these other organ functions. And um, there are some big gaps in, in, in the market that Buddy was just uh, talking about. Um, the problem is, is, as he was saying, that people have focused on cardiologists and heart disease, and they focused on pulmonologists and lung disease. Um, and I think it's been, uh, when, when you look at, um, for, for instance, congestive heart failure, um, there are other non-invasive um, devices out there, but what they tend to do is they predict very late, um, uh, non-invasively predict late consequences of decompensation. You know, things like uh, when patients are getting pulmonary edema or they're massively swelling or things like that. Mm. That's the horses out of the barn at that part. And that's probably going to require them to go back to the emergency department. We think that there is a gap in the market and, and, and we have an ability to understand much earlier in that process when, when decompensation is, is happening. Patients need a lead time if we're gonna avoid readmission. They need a lead time to get in touch with their, their caregiver to understand what they can do other than come to the emergency department to manage their disease. And, and, and we think that if we can find, find decompensation through the use of acoustic biomarkers in this way, that we can help this population of patients who aren't, uh, you know, being invasively monitored or you know things like that. Yeah, I, on that topic, I want to, I want to, I want to make a little distinction for you, for you and your audience, with regard to the technologies. Sure. Prevacy A is not an AI product. Prevacy A is what we call feature engineering, because we're looking for a particular feature. We're looking for MH4, right, and we're quantifying that. The AI product is totally different. There are no, there aren't acoustic biomarkers that we're looking for. And John, you might want to sort of further explain that about how the AI works versus because that's well, a little bit. There are different products. Yeah, yeah. It, so everything beyond Prevacy A is, is an AI-based product, and um, you know, so so we're instead of looking at one feature of of audio, which is what we're doing in Prevacy A, we're we're looking at virtually an infinite number of features within the audio spectrum. Um, and so uh, we create an, a machine learning based fingerprint of that audio and we can, uh, which is, which is um, multiple features, you know, hundreds or thousands of features rather than a single acoustic biomarker. And by fingerprinting that, that audio data using machine learning, uh, we can segment uh, audio that we get from a patient into very specific um, uh, clusters and understand when patients are moving from one zone of risk to another mm -hmm. zone of risk based on the fingerprint and that audio, if that makes sense. It does. It, so do you envision something like a software, a patented software package that you could maybe put on, say someone's phone, which would go into their pocket and be listening to these biomarkers that you will identify. Maybe I'm getting ahead well, of what you're doing, but you're making a good point. Yeah. So, so it depends on the clinical scenario. Um, Previs, Previs AI gut is meant for use in a hospital. And so 
that device will have its own cellular communication without needing someone's smartphone or anything like that. It'll communicate directly with the NTAC cloud platform. But on the other hand, for, for a device for monitoring lung function or heart function as a, a patient that's not in the hospital, um, a smartphone is a really great uh, application for use here because it already serves as a cellular gateway. Right. And we can really minimize the size of the device. One of the things that's important to us is making sure that we have a very low profile device that's easier for a patient than doing spirometry every day if they're an asthmatic or it's easier than them uh, weighing themselves uh, every day if they're a congestive heart failure patient. They slap it on and the data is moving through their smartphone into our cloud platform uh, where, where we can provide access to caregivers or, uh, or to the patient themselves. And they have access to it on their smartphone as well. So the smartphone would be a component of, of some of these technologies that are used in the outpatient setting. That's awesome. And a lot of that technology with regard to the cloud portion of it has already been developed with Previs AI Gut. It sort of allows us to do that rapid product, that, that rapid development we're talking about because we needed all those things to do Previs AI Gut, although it's an in-hospital, you know, it's an in-hospital device. A lot of the cloud infrastructure and everything that we do has already been created. So we don't have to recreate all those things to make this work. What we're, what we're doing now is John's looking at data and gathering the data, putting together the machine learning algorithms to do it. And then we create hardware to go along with that, the sensor on the chest and then the phone. But most of the stuff that we need to go into the cloud has already been, we've already developed that and we know it works already. Well, this is fascinating. Um, you know, the Merge Medical Podcast, multi-pronged purpose, if you will, you know, introducing uh, people to interesting ideas, interesting founders, solutions that physicians can can work into their own uh, you know solving problems within their own practice and then investment opportunities as well um do you guys we do have a capital raise going on by the way we didn't mention that but we do have one i just i was going to get to that here at the end just uh, <laughs> that is one of the you know the multi-pronged uh purposes of this and and i think our our listeners the members in our community uh they're all different they have different needs talents and um some may be interested in, in, in the capital raise com component. Others might um, be colorectal surgeons and, and this might right. be, you know, incredibly interested for this, their clinical practice. So what can you talk about your, your capital raise and where you are in that? Yeah, so this year we're gonna, we're, we're doing, um, we have a lot of milestones coming very quickly. Lots of them just coming very quickly. And it didn't make sense to do a priced round right now because we, um, because of the milestones, we believe that you're very, very uh, substantially increase the valuation of the company. So what we're doing is a convertible note and we're doing it sort of in two tranches or be basically two notes. But the first note is, is just a million dollars. And then what that million dollars does, it, it basically funds the company and, until we get through some more milestones, right? That, that we've already got like $600,000 of that in the door, but we've got a little bit more capacity left. Um, so far about $400,000 that we've got left at, is, is available. Um, so we'll do that and we're gonna continue to move through milestones. Those milestones are things like starting to generate revenue in the second half of the year, right? Uh, getting some data from Prevacy, uh, getting Prevacy I gut further along and getting beta units for that. Um, data from, from the heart and lung program. Those all things that we believe will increase the valuation of the company. Then um, as we move through that, that's just providing us some runway. 
um, we'll do another uh, another up to three million dollars. And I think by the time that we get ready to do that second, the, the up to three million dollar portion of the node, we'll, we 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 will uh, we'll know exactly how much we're going to do. It just really just depends on what the initial uptake of privacy A is in the market and how much revenue is generated. Um, but that'll that'll be in the second half of the year sometime. And the, the, the issue is this. And the, the first million dollars has already been priced at a $12 million cap. It's a 20% discount into a priced round, the next price round uh, with a $20 million, uh, $12.5 million cap. Uh, we believe that's the last best place to get in because we believe that some of these other milestones starting to generate revenue and, 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 and moving privacy I got along and heart and lung data will substantially increase that for that $3 million. So if I could summarize, you've got a, a device that saves the hospital money. It decreases morbidity and mortality, improves patient care. And we didn't even talk about the fact that you've got a, you know, a green solution where the devices are reused. You're moving towards a platform that will quite possibly be predictive of COPD, CHF, asthma. You're moving towards a cloud-based platform with your second stage device. Am I saying that all correct, buddy? Did I, did I, that's, all, that, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty much all correct, Jeff. So mm -hmm. I can't, yep. you know, I can't understand why an ad hospital administrator or any, co any physician wouldn't be interested in this. It's, it's, it's really a no brainer. It um, really is, but you know, it's just cutting through the clutter. You know, they, you know, we're not the only company in, out there selling devices. Now we're the only one selling them in this space. We don't really, we don't have any competition in this space, right? We're the only people out there and it's just a matter of time. So, you know, there are some variables here, like for the, for the prep, for the pre post-market sites, we have to wait to that trial ends to go in there and sign them as contracts. Now we've already got several commitments from PIs at those that, who want to take this through value committee. We've already got those, but you have to, then you have to get on the value committee calendar Sales cycle on a hospital post-COVID is about six months. We've started that process in a lot of these hospitals already. Um, so we believe that we'll have all eight of those on uh, as customers, you know, sometime in the second half of the year, plus others where we have started that process of, of moving them toward value committees to get them in. We still got to go through a value committee. And that's the real bottleneck mm -hmm. is getting on the right. calendar and then getting through. And by, you got to, you know, you got to convince the physician they want to use it get that position to take it to, to the value committee, you know, get on the calendar and then, you, you know, then you can do it. So it's just a, that it's just the sales cycle. That's really, the well, sure. there is a fair, this is a new class of device. There's really nothing out there that, that does acoustic biomarkers or anything. And so the educational lift is rather large as we, as we get out with hospitals and everything, because we're not selling just, you know, a new, newer, cheaper stapler for use in GI surgery or something. This really right. is a new class that requires education. So I think that's a lot of the lift. So, buddy, I want to ask you about a specific slide that's in the pitch deck. And maybe we would start the podcast with this. This says annual, it's the annual economic impact of Previs uh, EA. This says $6.9 million for a hospital with 444 Medicare discharges and 584 non-medical discharges. Tell me, tell me what that means real simply. So that means by using the product in every of the, every one of those patients, you should be able to generate cash flow um, through cost savings um, of $6.9 million. Basically. I, is what I mean, we need a drum roll after that. 
We do. <laughs> I wish I could. Because you, 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 you and, and like I said, most of that, if you look at it, there's a summary portion. If you, if you add, if, you add up everything and you just take the, you know, the bed day save piece and the revenue opportunity. That's the bulk of it is the bed day saves. Plus on that slide, the other important piece of it is I believe it says a 43% reduction in readmissions, right? Does it say that somewhere on that slide? It does. And that, that is hugely attractive to a lot of places, even though they know, but you'll notice that if I gave you the detailed portion of the model there, the, the portion that they're losing on the readmissions is trivial. Mm. With regard to a, a huge re, re, reduction in re but they're getting dinged on the quality metric, right? Right, exactly. They're getting dinged on a quality metric, but they're paying a little bit for that. But it's being overwhelmed by the remainder of the cost savings because most of these patients are Medicare patients. You know, there's lots of Medicare, and it's a DRG based space, right? And so they're getting flat payments to pay for this, and so every day we save them. And there should be the number of bed days saved at the, around on, the, on that slide somewhere too, Jeff. Uh, so we tell every hospital all of that. This is how many bed days we can save you. This is your readmission. You know, have a, we can reduce readmissions. And this is the cash flow. And then the you know the ROI on that is probably something like nine to one or something like that based on the cost of the license. We we've covered a lot. Uh, either one of you, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about anything that you think we haven't covered at this time. John. Uh, well, I, th there's one more piece that, that, that might be worth just briefly mentioning, which is uh, there's a big problem with coding of postoperative ileus in the hospital. Oh, yes. And um, we, um, the, the Prevacia sort of raises the um, awareness of, of postoperative ileus, but we've put together a companion program for hospitals that are, that are customers that helps um, allows us to come in and help with the documentation piece around postoperative ileus. Um, we did a small study at the University of Iowa looking at the opportunity. We found that about 38% of, of uh, ileus cases were not actually coded. Uh, and and, and um, postoperative ileus results in a bump in the DRG triplet um, uh, in, when, when it's documented appropriately, not in every patient. Uh, but about one in five patients, if they would have captured the code, uh, would have been bumped up to a to a higher DRG triplet, and and so the inaccuracy in coding around ileus and gastrointestinal impairment in the postoperative phase is costing hospitals money as well, and so we're able to um, actually give them hard uh, revenue uh, with the companion program. So it's called Previs CDP, Previs Clinical Documentation Program. Mm -hmm. And we had this developed by a health economics firm. I mean, because you can't go in and, and coach to code. We're not going in and saying we're promising you more revenue. What we do is we go in because we know it's undercoated everywhere by a, a massive amount. Mm -hmm. Is we go in and say, hand them a, we have a peer-reviewed paper from John study at Iowa and hand them that and say, here's a place where um, actually uh, it, was, it was not coded properly. And, and you can see what happened. And so what we're offering them is just the opportunity to go in and provide them with materials and education for their clinical documentation and improvement experts and their coders to be able to improve their coding practices as a, as a part of Prevacia, because Prevacia does raise the awareness of postoperative ileus. And if that thing says it's a high-risk patient, there's a 94% chance that it's going to be a postoperative ileus and the remainder of which chance it's going to be a small bile obstruction. You get to increase the triplet to, to get more resident, and that's what we're helping them do, 
is to is to get more justifiable reimbursement for the care that they're already providing. But we right. just go in and I tell them we're going to more help you more accurately code for this. So, so and this is this doesn't cost the hospital anything extra. This is just doesn't cost them a thing. Doesn't cost them a wow. thing. Well, it's definitely compelling. I think you guys are really onto something. I think you're gonna you're gonna help a lot of people and you're gonna save a lot of money and you're gonna make some money for yourselves. So it's really a win-win-win. That's what we're looking for. This is perfect for for our mission. Uh, you know, there's some altruistic reasons that Jeff and I do this. We thank you for coming uh, and joining us here for the Merge Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Brown, your host, with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole. Thanks for joining us.